Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Jake. On behalf of your captain and the entire Boston-based flight crew, let me welcome you aboard episode 142, the Cessna Strafer. At this time, make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their full and upright position and that your seatbelt is securely fastened. It's going to be a bumpy ride. This week, we're talking about a 1989 incident involving a North Shore man, a veteran and postal worker who murdered his ex-wife, stole a plane at gunpoint, and then flew around shooting up the city of Boston with an assault rifle. Before I begin, I just want to give a quick content warning for this week's show. The story this week includes graphic descriptions of domestic violence culminating in a murder. Also, while we don't include explicit sexual content, references are made to sex work and sex tourism that might have involved human trafficking. We'll warn you when something's coming up that you might want to fast forward through. But before we talk about the Cessna Strafer, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a new podcast called Boston Venue, The Channel Story. Since our story this week about the Cessna Strafer is set in the 1980s, it made sense to choose a book club selection from the 80s as well. The Channel was one of Boston's premier rock venues of the decade, opening in 1980 and finally shutting down in 1993. The Boston Venue podcast is assembled around the memories of Harry Boris, who founded the channel, built its reputation, and was eventually forced out of the organization in a mob takeover in 1991. As of this recording, the fourth episode was just released, and there have already been stories about corrupt cops, Southie extortionists, and pay-to-play, not to mention some of the biggest names in punk, hip-hop, and reggae. Here's how the team behind Boston Venue describes their show, and how you can contribute to their narrative. This podcast tells the true and complete story of the Channel Nightclub in Boston, bringing its truth to light. Based on a book in progress containing the vivid recollections of club founder Harry Boris, they cover the too-true-to-believe tale from the club's beginning in 1980 to its inglorious end at the hands of Boston's most ruthless mobsters. Over the years, there's been a lot of rewriting of the club's history. Harry led the operation of the club for 11 and a half of its 12 years of existence. It's time to set the record straight, once and for all. This podcast is Harry's story, but it's also your story. If you were there as a performer, audience member, employee, roadie, tech, or media member, please share your memories, impressions, and observations. We're looking for the ones most representative of the true channel experience to include in the narrative. All comments are welcome. Subscribe to Boston Venue in your favorite podcast app, or check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 142 for a link to their website. And for our upcoming event this week, we're going a little further back in time than the 1980s. While we take trade with China for granted today, except when our president's trying to start a trade war with them, things weren't always this easy. Boston's connections to China began in the early 19th century, then flourished, as Boston merchants made fortunes in trade in the middle of the century. As you might remember from our interview with Stephen Ujifusa about his book Barons of the Sea, the China trade even inspired Donald McKay to build the fastest ships in the world in his East Boston shipyard. An upcoming talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society by Caroline Frank of Brown University and Dane Morrison of Salem State University which will be moderated by Gwen Miller from the College of the Holy Cross, 
we'll explore these connections. Titled, The Legacy of the China Trade in Massachusetts, Families, Fortunes, and Foreign Luxuries, here's how the event page describes it. We live in a society where Chinese-made commodities are a part of everyday life. But dependence on foreign goods is not a modern American phenomenon. The economic, political, and social dimensions of early trade with China were felt on the domestic and individual levels, as reliance on tea, silks, and other materials sourced from China became staples in early American households. Massachusetts merchant families were able to capitalize on a hunger for these goods to shape the city as well as their own fortunes. The talk will take place at the MHS on Boylston Street on July 30th at 6 p.m., with a reception beginning at 5.30. Advanced registration is required, and there's a $10 fee unless you're an MHS member or an EBT cardholder. We'll link to the information you need to know in the show notes at hubhistory.com slash 142. Now, a few weeks ago on the show, you might have heard me make a joke about finding a sponsor for Hub History that's a better fit than the mail-order underwear or print-your-own postage companies that you've heard so many podcast ads for. Right after that aired, Tyson from Liberty & Co. reached out and asked about sponsoring the show. And as soon as I saw their t-shirt for the law practice of John Adams established 1758, I knew it was a perfect match. Liberty & Co. sells unique items inspired by the American Revolution many with themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. One unique product that Liberty & Co. offers is an exclusive Candles of the Revolution series. Experts say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory. So imagine remembering the Boston Tea Party through a candle that smells just like black tea. Or putting yourself in Abigail Adams' garden with a Peacefield candle that has a blooming wisteria scent. You can get 20% off your order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use the discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. And now it's time for this week's main topic. We open with a clip from video shot by Scott Hess for NBC News. That's the sound of a small plane repeatedly diving down out of the sky toward the South Boston Postal Annex along the Fort Point Channel while the pilot fires an AK-47 assault rifle out the window. The man behind the wheel was an employee at the annex, and his rampage that night may be the only known example of somebody going postal in the air. Before the night was over, one person would be dead, the pilot would be arrested, and there was a trail of destruction across Greater Boston. There were bullet holes in police vehicles in Lynn, in the Prudential Tower Skywalk, in several buildings at Logan Airport and a plane belonging to Continental Airlines, in the Postal Annex, and in Rose Wharf. Pedestrians on Newberry Street and around Kenmore Square had been narrowly missed, as had a tugboat captain on the harbor. Alfred J. Hunter III always wanted to be a pilot. He grew up in Lynn, where his father had a pilot's license and flew small planes. The younger Hunter was desperate to follow in his footsteps, but he kept falling short of his dreams. When he graduated from high school, he enrolled in a technical college in Texas with the goal of getting a degree in aviation, probably intending to become a commercial pilot. After less than two years, he dropped out. 
Of course, in 1967, there was a very common career path for college dropouts. A biographical sketch in the book Going Postal by Don Lasseter says, In 1967, at age 20, he enlisted in the U.S. Army with the same goal in mind. This time, Hunter hoped to learn the skills of piloting a helicopter. Once again, he failed, lasting only a few weeks at the Fort Rucker, Alabama Flying School. The Army transferred the disappointed Hunter to Mississippi to become an air traffic controller, but that plan aborted as well. He ended up taking medic training at Fort Sam Houston. Next stop, Vietnam. I couldn't find an account of Hunter's Vietnam service that I fully trusted, but he'd later regale friends and acquaintances with tales of spraying the jungle with full-auto fire as he rode into hot LZs to retrieve wounded soldiers. It's not clear to me what parts of his war stories are true, but he did serve as a combat medic, and he was sometimes deployed on Hueys. That same profile in Going Postal describes how the next chapter of Alfred Hunter's life unfolded. After Vietnam, Hunter returned to stateside duty and tried to settle down with a new wife. Like many of his previous commitments, this one also failed, ending in divorce. He re-enlisted in 1975 to serve tours of duty in Germany and Korea as an armored reconnaissance specialist. His travels took him to the Philippine Islands, where he met a bright, attractive young woman, Elvira Sanchez. A whirlwind courtship of the quiet, conservative Filipina, 11 years his junior, convinced her that she had a future with Hunter. In her hometown of Ancalar, the couple stood side by side while the town's mayor presided over their wedding ceremony. They returned to the U.S. after Hunter's second enlistment was completed in 1978. They moved into a cottage at a little motel on Route 133 in Ipswich that was owned by his father. Over the years, it was sometimes known as the All Seasons Lodge or the Sunnyside Lodge. On May 11, 1989, the Boston Globe interviewed a friend of the couple who said that friends knew them as Elvie and Jimmy. We used to have barbecues at the hotel, them and our parents and all, said the friend. Everybody got along fine. She was real sweet. When she first got there, she didn't speak much English. She was real deferential to him. She would do everything for him. A real housewife, you know? The article continues. As time went on, however, Elvira became more accustomed to her new home. She began to open up, to talk more at family gatherings. Soon, she began to wear slacks and express her opinions more forcefully. She also began to work at home, making plastic pieces that are attached to clothing to prevent shoplifting. A few years after she gave birth to Stephen in 1984... Elvira went to work for New Perspectives, a temporary employment agency in Beverly. Elvira, who had a degree in accounting, did mostly number work, such as bookkeeping, during her two and a half years there. She left that job about six months ago. She was lovely, said Brenda Halper, owner of New Perspectives. She was a hardworking person. During this period, Jimmy Hunter kept his dream of flight alive by purchasing an ultralight. If a plane has a single seat, is less than 254 pounds, and has a top speed under 63 miles per hour, it can be classified as an ultralight. That means it doesn't need an airworthiness certificate, doesn't have to be registered, and the pilot doesn't have to have a license or any training or experience. Perfect for a man who had washed out of multiple pilot training programs. While those first few years together may have seemed idyllic from the outside, there were signs of trouble. In 1979, Alfred Jimmy Hunter was convicted of assault after getting into a fight with two men in a bar and pulling a knife. 
He was sentenced to probation, but his case seems to have fallen through the cracks of the Massachusetts court system. By the mid-1980s, the signs of trouble were becoming billboards. Jimmy's father, Alfred Hunter Jr., was deeply in debt by this time and owed tens of thousands of dollars in back taxes. He sold the motel and moved to Florida, forcing the couple to find new accommodations. They ended up moving into a houseboat in Danvers. The Lassiter profile describes how Jimmy's obsessions caused a growing strain on the marriage. And this is a moment when sensitive listeners might want to fast forward by about a minute. Lassiter wrote, Hunter complained to a co-worker that his wife became too Americanized, and he didn't like that. So he had to seek other companionship. According to another acquaintance on the job, Hunter not only talked of his passionate attraction to Asian women, but he brought amateur pornographic videotapes to the workplace to show selected colleagues. They featured Hunter cavorting with various women from the Far East. Hunter claimed he had traveled to the Philippines and Thailand to seek out ladies who would perform in his videos. In Massachusetts, the co-worker said, Hunter would get tired of one girl and then move on to another. By 1987, the marriage was falling apart. On May 24th of that year, Elvira went to Salem District Court and testified that Alfred had caused her physical harm and placed her in fear of imminent physical harm. The court issued a restraining order barring Alfred from any in-person contact for one year. They filed for divorce jointly in 1988, and by November the divorce was granted on the basis of irreconcilable breakdown in their marriage. Even as their divorce cited irreconcilable breakdown, the couple reconciled, at least partly. Sometime in mid-1988, Alfred moved into Elvira's apartment in Beverly. It didn't last long. On December 31, 1988, Elvira told police that Alfred had assaulted her. She reported that they'd been watching TV together when she changed the channel without his permission. An enraged Alfred, quote, punched me in the face and held me down to the floor. Then he dragged her by the hair into the bedroom. On January 3, 1989, they were back in court, and Alfred was charged with assault. When the case was heard on May 9th, Hunter would get a year of probation, and the restraining order was renewed. In the meantime, Elvira moved out and found a new apartment in Danvers. If the record of Alfred's 1979 assault conviction hadn't been lost due to a clerical error, prosecutors might have been inclined to pursue an assault charge in the 1987 case, and Hunter almost certainly would have gotten a harsher sentence at the May 9, 1989 trial. As a convicted felon, Hunter should also have been forced to turn in his gun license in 1979. Instead, those same clerical errors allowed him to retain a Massachusetts FID card through 1989, which permitted him to purchase a rifle or shotgun. After working all day at the South Boston Postal Annex on January 17, 1989, he drove up to Salisbury and went to Bob's Tactical Shooting Range and Gun Shop. That morning, a man named Patrick Purdy had opened fire on an elementary school playground in Stockton, California with an AK-47. He killed five children and injured 30 more. All the dead and many of the wounded were Southeast Asian refugees, and the attack was believed to be racially motivated. That day at work, Hunter confided in a co-worker, I really like what happened there. I need a gun. I really want one. That night, Bob's Tactical sold him an AK-47 assault rifle just like Purdy's. The Globe quoted that same co-worker as saying that Alfred would take his toy to New Hampshire to practice firing it in the woods. In 
After getting a sentence of probation on May 9, 1989, Alfred Hunter put his AK-47 in his gray van and drove to Danvers. Our more sensitive listeners might want to skip forward about two minutes at this point. According to court documents, Alfred knocked on the door of Elvira's apartment between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m. Their five-year-old son, Stephen, opened the door, and Alfred told him to go to his room. Alfred came inside the apartment, and Elvira stepped into the hallway. Neighbors called the police after hearing her scream, Oh, please don't. Don't do it. And then hearing what sounded like gunshots. Alfred had shot her at close range. When a neighbor came to see what the disturbance was, five-year-old Stephen said, My daddy just shot my mommy. By that time, Alfred was gone and the police were on their way. Officers would later describe a room-by-room search, during which they found Elvira's, quote, body lying face down in a pool of blood so substantial that the blood had seeped through the floor and pooled on the basement floor. She had seven gunshot wounds to the chest, head, and both wrists. She'd been shot three times in the front of her body and once to the temple as she lay on the floor. She was shot at close range, and each of the wounds to the head and torso was fatal. The wounds to her wrists were described as defensive-type wounds, unquote. Later, after he was arrested, Hunter would tell a fellow prisoner that he had shot Elvira once in each breast, once in the crotch, and once in the head, as punishment for allegedly cheating on him. It was the first homicide in Danvers in over 20 years. After leaving Elvira's apartment, Alfred drove to Route 1 and began looking for another car. He tried and failed to steal a car in the parking lot of Kalitri's restaurant, then used the rifle to carjack somebody at the Oriental Jade Chinese restaurant at about 9.50 p.m. His next stop was Beverly Municipal Airport, about 10 miles away. He arrived there at about 10.20 p.m. and found that Salem State College student and part-time flight instructor Robert Golder was the only person around. Golder remembered that Hunter said, I want an airplane, and I want it now. I don't want to hurt anyone. Saying, I saw this rifle, and he stuck it in my face, and he demanded an airplane with full fuel. Hunter had Golder grab the keys for several planes and marched him to the runway at gunpoint. Golder didn't hesitate to comply because, quote, It wasn't like he had a crazed look on his face, but I knew he meant business. We didn't have any with full fuel, but he took one with about a half tank. He then went over to his car and grabbed a big steel strongbox about two feet by one foot, which I assume was full of ammunition because it weighed about 75 pounds. He then told me to get out of the airplane. He said, I haven't flown in a couple of years, but I can fly it. Just start it for me. As he loaded up the plane, Hunter ordered Golder, Don't do anything stupid. Don't use the phone. I know who you are. Golder told NBC, He told me that he had killed somebody tonight, so don't do anything stupid. Apparently putting his expertise flying his ultralight to work, Alfred Hunter got his stolen red and white Cessna off the ground. Reports say that he started out just circling the airport in Beverly, possibly getting a feel for the plane. Then he flew north into New Hampshire. Turning around, he made a loop or two around Wakefield, then flew all the way down to the South Shore, looping around Duxbury. Perhaps he was feeling more confident, or maybe he just thought he was running out of time, but whatever the reason that's when he made a beeline for downtown Boston. The timeline gets a little jumbled from that point on, but he seems to have been everywhere at once in the skies over Boston. He was spotted buzzing low over the cars on the Southeast Expressway, taking potshots at a tugboat on the harbor, 
and at one point, he even flew under the lower span of the Tobin Bridge. Mostly, though, he flew around taking an aerial tour of Boston's neighborhoods. He flew over Kenmore Square right after the Sox lost to the Minnesota Twins. That's when people on the ground began to realize that they were dealing with something a bit more than just a disoriented pilot or a daredevil. A few blocks away from Fenway Park, a 30-year-old stockbroker named Andrew Smith was walking down Newbury Street on his way to a restaurant when he saw the plane approaching him from the direction of the stadium. He told the Boston Globe, The plane was flying very low, and all the lights were out. Then it started popping again. At that point, it was so low, I thought it was about to crash. But when I saw the shell casings lying around, I realized what was going on. He called the police with a report, and eventually ended up giving his story to a very skeptical BPD deputy superintendent named Robert Hayden, who said, I looked at him very closely to see if he was drunk or insane. However, when Hayden called BPD operations, he learned that a tugboat captain had just reported a similar encounter. A small, red and white plane without any lights on it buzzed low over his boat, making popping sounds, which the captain assumed were firecrackers. As the police began to realize what was happening, Hayden and other leaders went into an incident command room on the seventh floor of the old BPD headquarters on the corner of Berkeley and Stewart Streets, and they began coordinating a response. Hayden told the Globe, This was the most unusual night I've had as a police officer in 22 years. We were helpless. We were totally out of our element. We were bound to the ground. We were trying to go where we thought he was going to go and deploy our men and deploy our ambulances. Someone brought up the idea of sending up a helicopter to try to track or even shoot down Hunter's plane, but a state police spokesperson later told the press why that would have been a terrible idea. Trooper Barbara Bennett said authorities decided to track the two-seat Cessna by radar from the ground and wait for it to run out of fuel instead of sending up a helicopter after it because you'd be a sitting duck in the air. There was a high degree of frustration for authorities on the ground, but it wouldn't have made sense to go up after him, Bennett said. The Associated Press quoted FAA spokesperson Michael Cicciarelli as saying, He was an intermittent blip on the radar screen. It was very difficult to keep him in full sight. There were attempts to contact the airplane, but there was no voice contact. Even without radar tracking, Hunter wasn't too hard to follow from the ground. Soon, Hayden and the rest of the task force could watch his plane out the window of their command post, as it repeatedly dove down toward the South Boston Postal Annex where Hunter worked. Officers were ordered to converge on the area, and the streets were sealed off for two blocks around in fear that he might decide to crash the plane into the postal building and put a fiery end to his flight. The police asked postal employees to leave the building or shelter in the basement. Though it's hard to make out in the NBC television coverage that we'll link to in the show notes, Hunter kept firing his AK-47 at the postal annex and at the surrounding buildings during a series of aerobatics the press would report that bullet holes were later found in the building. In fact, when I tweeted about this incident a few weeks ago, I got many comments from people who remembered that night, including this one from Tim. I worked at the South Boston Post Office General Mail Facility when Al Hunter strafed the building. I saw bullet holes in a fluorescent light fixture the next day. As the plane ran low on fuel, Alfred Hunter's attention shifted from the postal annex to Logan Airport. As he banked over the airport, he raked airline buildings and at least one parked plane with gunfire shortly before 1 a.m. Then, he began diving directly at the control tower, 
pulling up and away at the last moment, then coming around and doing it again. The same FAA spokesperson told the AP, The fourth time, controllers were directed to literally vacate the tower and relocate to the radar room until further notice. John Lydon, another FAA spokesperson, told the New York Times, We have a very thick handbook on the rules of air traffic control, but there's nothing in there about what to do if a maniac comes shooting an AK-47 at you in the control tower. The FAA ordered airport operations to shut down and temporarily closed the airspace over Logan to commercial flights. Luckily, it was a slow time of night, and only one flight was affected, forcing it to circle until it finally landed about 45 minutes late. At 12.57 a.m., Hunter landed his stolen plane on one of Logan's runways and began taxiing towards Terminal C, with cruisers from the state and Boston Police Departments in hot pursuit. However, as they closed in on the Cessna, he turned the plane suddenly toward another runway, slammed the throttle forward again, and took off. Finally, with less than five minutes' worth of fuel remaining in the tank, he landed again at 1.15. This time he taxied to Terminal C, shut off the engine, and surrendered to waiting officers. Somehow, despite all the close calls, nobody was injured by the many shots Hunter fired from the air. Neither the rifle nor the crate of ammunition was ever found. A caller from Dorchester had reported seeing the plane flying low and a large box being thrown from it. Perhaps that was the metal ammo box that Robert Golder had described Hunter wrestling into the Cessna. A few loose, live, and spent shell casings were found in the cockpit, but that's it. Authorities speculated that he had thrown the rifle out the window on one of his many passes over the harbor before landing. The next day, Hunter was arraigned for Elvira's murder in a Salem courtroom and pleaded not guilty. The judge ordered a 20-day psychiatric evaluation at Bridgewater State Hospital to see if Hunter would be competent to stand trial. When that period was over, a competence hearing was held at the hospital. A psychiatrist who treated him during that stay testified that he was severely depressed and suicidal, and he was found incompetent. The judge ordered him to be committed to Bridgewater for six months, with another hearing to be held at that time. If he was again found incompetent, he'd be indefinitely committed, with a competency hearing to be held at least once a year. Six months later, like clockwork, the court held another hearing. This time, the psychiatrist said that Hunter was mentally able to understand the charges, and he could participate in his own defense. He was ruled competent for trial on December 27, 1989. The trial dragged on for nearly two years, with Hunter's defense resting on his state of mind at the time of the crime. His lawyers argued that he'd been in decline in early 1989, and he didn't know what he was doing because he was suffering from terrible PTSD brought on by his combat experience in Vietnam. During one hearing, Hunter sat in court while a video of jungle fighting was played, then an expert witness testified about his mental state. I didn't observe that there was a marked change in his behavior. He was not able to see it. It was behind him. It was facing you all. But there were gunshot wounds, gunshots, and audio parts of it, and I didn't observe any particular change in his behavior during that period. If he had a post-traumatic stress disorder, you might expect that he would have reacted rather strongly to that. Now, as a society, I hope our understanding of PTSD is a bit more nuanced today than it was in the early 1990s. But in 1992, that was enough evidence for a jury to decide that Hunter was not suffering from PTSD in a way that would make him unable to tell right from wrong. 
Not only that, but during the hours after his initial arrest in 1989, Hunter told two different prisoners in jail with him that he had shot Elvira because he was mad at her. On March 13, 1992, a jury found him guilty, and Alfred J. Hunter III was given a life sentence for the murder of his ex-wife. He also received two concurrent five-year sentences for charges of assault with a dangerous weapon. Hunter's arrest and trial fell right in the middle of the first wave of activism that eventually led to the 1994 federal assault weapons ban. The Stockton schoolyard shooting that had motivated Hunter to buy an AK-47 had also motivated state and local lawmakers across the country to take steps to curtail the availability of semi-automatic assault rifles. California was the first, effectively banning assault rifles in the state in May of 1989. A week after Hunter's crime spree, the Boston City Council passed a resolution requesting that the state government strengthen rules requiring that whenever a firearms ID card was renewed, court records should be searched for new convictions. It also asked that the legislature pass a pending home rule petition to allow Boston to ban assault rifles within city limits. That July, Republican President George H.W. Bush approved a permanent ban on the import of several assault rifles, including the AK-47. After another mass shooting in 1991, momentum was building for a nationwide ban on assault rifles. By 1994, over 75% of Americans supported a ban on assault weapons, and former presidents Carter, Ford, and Reagan all wrote to the House of Representatives in support of such a ban. Finally, President Clinton signed a bill banning semi-automatic rifles, pistols, and shotguns with certain, often cosmetic, features in September 1994. The ban expired in 2004, and I'm sure that had nothing to do with the increasing number of mass shootings we've seen since then. Two years after his conviction, Alfred Hunter's legal team was back in court. They'd pursued an appeal before the Mass SJC, laying out six areas where they believed the trial judge had made mistakes. The Supreme Judicial Court concurred with them on two points. In a murder case where the sole issue at trial concerned the defendant's state of mind at the time of the killing, the judge committed error in denying the defendant a voir dire on the issue, properly raised, of the voluntariness of statements the defendant made to two civilian witnesses on the day of his arraignment in the district court, from whence he had been committed, after an examination by a psychiatrist to the Bridgewater State Hospital for determination of his competence to stand trial. In the circumstances of a criminal case in which the defendant was ordered to submit to one examination by a psychiatrist, the judge committed error in admitting testimony on direct examination that the defendant had refused on advice of counsel to submit to a second examination. On January 25, 1994, the SJC overturned Hunter's conviction and remanded the case to the Superior Court for a retrial. On November 8, 1995, Alfred Hunter, now 48 years old, was back in court facing a first-degree murder charge. He again did not contest having killed Elvira and stolen the plane, and his attorneys again argued that he had been mentally ill at the time of the murder. Less than two weeks later, he was convicted and sentenced to a term of life without possibility of parole. In 1998, Hunter mounted another appeal, this time claiming that his trial had been unfair because the jury was not screened for implicit bias against white men, and because having an expert judge's reaction to seeing a combat video was akin to forcing him to testify against himself. This time, the SJC found in favor of the Commonwealth, and Hunter's conviction was upheld. He disappears from the headlines after the 1998 appeal, 
But a state record search reveals that as of mid-July 2019, Alfred J. Hunter III remains in state custody in a medium security unit at MCI Norfolk. To learn more about the bizarre case of the Cessna Strafer, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 142. We'll have plenty of articles about the case from the Boston Globe and other publications. We'll link to court records from Hunter's appeals, to the resolution in favor of an assault weapons ban passed by the city council, and to a YouTube video of the NBC Nightly News coverage of Hunter's rampage. Plus, we'll link to a 2014 bang shift article by Craig Fitzgerald that first tipped me off to the Cessna Strafer story. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the channel podcast, this week's Boston Book Club Pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might just play it on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving us a brief review. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to separate fact from fiction regarding the secret pirate tunnels of the North End. 